Is there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. Oh, the doctor is definitely in, and he needs to be, because uh, Dr. Batar, a new report, and it's on healthfinder.gov, uh, says that uh, more than half of all Americans have chronic health problems. Dude, they needed a study to figure that out? Yeah, you know, this is a great, great <laughs> topic, Robert, because this is something close and dear to my heart, because I love the surprise on people's face when they start to realize that there is a difference between being in good health versus the absence of disease because most people on in our in our society believe that the absence of disease is the same thing as having good health and what we're talking about here is half the population is chronically ill that means that the other half of the population thinks because they're not chronically ill that they're healthy whereas in fact that is the furthest thing from the truth they are absent of a chronic disease, but that doesn't mean that they're healthy. So if you were able to plot this on a graph, um, far left, let's say the far left is the chronically ill. Mm-hmm. And the you know, actually, I just realized the political connotations. <laughs> oops. oops. But anyway, yeah, oops is right. But yeah. Let's put that aside, okay? Let's just say on one side you've got, and actually I like that the far left, no. On one side, you've got the chronically ill, and on the other side is not the the absence of disease. Absence of disease is actually in the middle. The opposite side is healthy, and most people are not healthy. They're just absent in disease, absent of... Currently absent in a a diagnosed disease. Uh, I've kind of likened it to the folks that say they can eat a fast food, you know, go to the fast food drive-thru, and they're fine. Oh, yeah, I eat that all the time. I'm fine. I'm like, dude, if you're not at least having diarrhea uh, after eating that food, there's a problem. You're chronically ill. That's not a good thing. That, that, that's a very uh, good statement, too, because, you know, wh- whether they can tolerate something is not the same as being fine, and that's a very, very important distinction. It's subtle, but it's important mm-hmm. because just, the fact that the body can tolerate something does not mean that it's not taking its toll. You know, Correct. it's like saying you got a really strong mule that can carry the burden, but that doesn't mean that you've laden the mule down with even more burden because eventually that mule is going to fail. And right. so the reason I use the word mule because, you know, a beast of burden. So we want to make sure that we understand the difference between chronically ill and the opposite level, which is really healthy, but we see absence of disease as the opposite end of the spectrum, whereas, in fact, there's another whole spectrum beyond that, and that's optimum health. Right. So what's scary is when they talk about in this particular study that half the population, half of Americans have chronic health problems, um, you know, that, again, could be a moment of duh, as I'm sure that... Well, for us, for us, I mean, we, we've been dealing and seeing that, not not least of which, of course, you know, I had to overcome so many chronic conditions in my life to, to know what I know today. 
uh, that, it, you know, what's astonishing is that it's not 90 percent, you know, and maybe we could argue it could be uh, shortly thereafter if we continue this this path of uh, toxic food, toxic water, toxic uh, vaccines, to- you know, all of these things that we, we would discuss here. Now, I'm trying to well, think of a more. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Technically, this. I was going to say, technically, this we, this could be 90 percent because this is more than half. It doesn't say half the Americans. Yeah. It's more than half. Yeah, it could be ninety. They're not real specific, but I'm trying to I'm trying to think of a martial arts analogy here, because when you're in a you know a high state of fitness and you're ready to defend yourself, if somebody comes at you with a staff or even their own fist, you you know you're trained, you can react, you can block it. The blow doesn't do you any harm. But over time, if you're weakened or if certain ones get past past the defenses, you start getting hit. Now, I'm not saying that the next blow is going to kill you. Maybe it's just sparring. But there is, as you said, it, it takes its toll if that's if you can no longer defend yourself. And in, in the acute state, you just reject toxins. You just reject them. The body goes, nope, not for me. But at a certain point of adaptation, you're weakened, and now you're accepting them, trying to deal with them in another way. It's not optimal, but you'll live. Uh, but you may end up in a chronic state of disease. In fact, you will. It's just going to manifest differently from a different, you know, different constitution. Yeah, I totally agree with that, Robert. And here's the thing: when you look at the title of this, more than half of the Americans, more than half of Americans have chronic health problems. Here's the issue: if we know that half the population has suffered from depression, then how can they say more than half have chronic health problems? I think that your original statement, maybe ninety percent. Because if you start looking at people and asking them their state of health, um, where would people really put that their own state of health? I think that probably 15, 20% of people would feel that they were truly in good health. But if you expand the definition to what we talked about earlier, where absence of disease does not mean that they're in good health, I bet you you would encomp- you know you, you would include a, a greater number of people into that. Sure, uh, well, but how many people chronically ill or absence of uh, disease? Right. How many people, Doctor Batar, will tell you I am just fine? I'm doing great. I just had this one little thing, and then you begin to query them further, and you find out they're on five different medications for different things, and they oh, honestly yeah. believe when they're telling you that they're fine, that they're fine. They believe it. Well, my doctor says I'm fine, and you're like I'm on five drugs, but my doctor says I'm fine. I'm like, wow, what? This is hilarious because you're absolutely right. I had a patient Uh that came to me, and so, you know, we get that detailed head map history, right? Yep. And I'm sitting with this patient, and I ask her about her medical history, and she says, I have none. And I said, you have none? Now, this is a woman that's sitting in front of me. She's got a two-liter, she's got a a nasal cannula with oxygen going at two liters per minute, Okay. She's got a history. Uh, she's got uh, the raspy voice, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Come to find, I'm, I'm looking at her medical records, and I asked her again. I said, "Excuse me, did you say you don't have a medical history?" She goes, "No, I don't have anything significant." Her medical history, then the chart I'm looking at shows uh, five vessel cabbage, a coronary artery bypass graft, and a previous three vessel cabbage before that, two heart attacks, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, about with breast cancer in the past. Um, and she's a brittle diabetic. I mean, this woman was the proverbial train wreck, and in her world, she had no significant medical history. Hmm. And she's sitting there with oxygen in front of me. Now, this was, you know, you just made that that you know interesting comment about the five drugs and thinking that they're not ill. Here's a person that was tremendously uh, under the the bar of what you'd consider as health, 
and in her world, she had no significant medical history. So, yes, the delusion that people may be under, that's another aspect of this that certainly has to be taken into consideration. Sure, and I look back on my history. Uh, I was ill from almost the word go, and so it was a normal part of my existence being unhealthy, but it wasn't defined that. It was like, oh, no, he just has allergies and respiratory issues and skin problems and, and skeletal inflammation. But other than that, he's healthy. So that's another way of saying it. Other than all of those things, right, I have cancer, but other than that, I'm healthy. I've heard that, too. That's right. That's right. So these are these definitions of health or lack of health would probably have to be taken into consideration. But I think once we would factor all these components in, I would venture to say that probably uh, one to two out of every ten people would truly be healthy, and the rest of them would, if they're not ill, they're close to being ill or their absence of disease right now, it's certainly not healthy. Right. Well, this is part of the process. And, you know, even I go back for our new listeners, especially uh, the international best-selling book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. We talk about it. People have written in about it, how it's still impacting their lives. It's been out for a number of years now, but it's still just as valid as the day it was written. And these are the kind of books that we, you know, I encourage you to read because it transforms your view of the world because our reality has been altered in such a way that, again, health is now, as you said, become the absence of disease or, uh, you know, having an allergy is normal now. So that's, you're still healthy, but you have an allergy. No, you have a hyperimmune response to the environment. That is not healthy. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think that helping people to understand what the definition of healthy is, mm -hmm. uh, is, is an important part because that will help to make them aware of their own misunderstanding of what health really is. Yeah. A big part of my learning early on when I started into homeopathy was to get back to the basics like acute and chronic. What's the difference between an acute disease and a chronic disease? And sometimes I wonder if doctors, if they're trained in it, somehow they forget it when they become doctors because in many cases they try to take all of their acute training, whether it be drugs or other things, and put it into the chronic hole. And it's, it just doesn't work the same way. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, Robert. Uh, I think that the definition of acute versus chronic and, and not to not to forget the point that sometimes acute things if left untreated can become chronic yes and then you've also got uh, you know not to can make the issue even more confusing but sometimes you've got things <laughs> yeah. that are considered to be sub-acute or subclinical, so they mm -hmm. don't manifest themselves but they are still going on cavitations are a perfect example of that with the low insidious uh, low-grade infection that people don't realize or um or thyroid hypothyroidism that can be subclinical where you do the blood test and everything looks okay, but they're still subclinical. Um, they're, they're low thyroid and, and it just doesn't manifest itself in the blood work, but they're still subclinical or, or suboptimal, which can then eventually lead to a chronic disease. But I think that, again, these are all part and parcel of those things of helping people to understand what is the definition of health and what is the definition of the absence of disease. Yeah. Speaking of uh, thyroid, uh, we have a question of the day. Uh, coming in from Barbara, and she's talking about this uh, uh, researchers identifying a link between low thyroid hormone levels in pregnancy and the child's inability to do mental math and, re and also reducing their height. Um, and she's referencing a Daily Mail article uh, on this. Of course, this is a mainstream media. They're covering occasionally these uh, reports. And she says, I think it goes further than this. She says, I think there's a, a link with low thyroid hormone levels in pregnancy and the child being on the autistic spectrum. She says her doses were all over the place when she was pregnant, and her levels were too, 
and no account was taken of the time lag between those dose increases and it correctly reflecting in blood levels. So evidently she, they were manipulating her thyroid levels, and now she has a child on the autistic spectrum with Asperger's, and she's wondering what you think, Dr. Batar. Barbara is wondering, and I know we're up on a break here, but think, about, think on that. We don't know. I know I'll just say this right up front. We don't know anything about the vaccine history of this child. She didn't mention it. But is there any truth to thyroid dysfunction, imbalance, hormonal levels, and a manifestation of autism spectrum disorders. We'll come back with Dr. Rasha Bittar right here on Advanced Medicine version of the Robert Scott Bell Show. If you ever miss the show, medicalrewind.com is an easy place to hear more of Dr. Bittar and me, RSB, chatting about advanced medicine. The Robert Scott Bell Show. In all my years of radio, I've never seen anything like this. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. All right, Barbara was asking the question of Dr. Batar here, uh, question of the day about researchers linking low thyroid hormone levels in pregnancy and some issues with the child that's born, including likelihood of being diagnosed into the autism spectrum. Again, Dr. Batar, she didn't mention anything about the vaccine history or other things, so we're, we're, we don't have all of the information, but. What have you heard or seen in regards to thyroid function in pregnancy and the impact on the health of the offspring? Well, I think that, uh, Robert, you can answer this a number of different ways. I think you would agree with me. Certainly, the thyroid levels in the mother will play and have an impact on the health of the child. But autism is not something that would be associated directly with us. Could this could this contribute to the fire? Yes. But is it the spark that caused the fire? Certainly not. The bottom line is this, that if the during the National Vaccine Initiative, which put, took place in 1991, which was um, in response to stamping out all childhood diseases, if the incidence of autism was 1 in 10,000 then, and 25 years later, the incidence of autism now is 1 in, you know, whatever it is, 40 eight or mm-hmm. 43 or 35, whatever it is now, it's constantly changing and constantly getting more and more abundantly clear that it's, in, it's prevalent in the population. You can't say that, oh, all these women were, uh, had their thyroid hormones in 1991. Everybody, one out of, only one out of 10,000 women had an imbalanced thyroid, and now mm-hmm. one out of every 35 or 40 women have an imbalanced thyroid. That's just preposterous, and it's not accurate. Um, it is something that could potentially contribute to the problem, but certainly is not the cause of the problem. It could sure. exacerbate the problem, but it's not the cause of the problem. The cause of the problem is very clear. It's mercury on board of physiology that can't eliminate. Yes, do other toxins play in a role? Yes. Do yes. other hormonal things contribute? Yes, but is it the well cause? Well said. Yeah, and I think that if I, think, if I look at uh, the uh, issues with the thyroid, we do see two key uh, minerals, if you will. Selenium deficiency, iodine deficiency also play a, a significant impact or havoc on the endocrine system and, and the, uh, the thyroid. Selenium deficiency, of course, we know is going to create all kinds of problems, metabolic problems, cellular problems uh, during pregnancy for the offspring. So we can start drawing out from one diagnosed issue, which is a thyroid issue, to, okay, what are the things that would likely manifest that and how would that impact on the health of a child? That's exactly right. So you could have many different things that are going to contribute to the child's health. 
and certainly the exposure of vaccines um, can, as you as you started the segment by mentioning that we don't know what the history of the child is as far as vaccine um, history, but you have to go back even further and look at what the mother's history of inoculations were and the mother's history of um, exposure to mercury was, what the mother's amalgam load was, mm-hmm. uh, and especially looking at these parameters in the nine months that she was carrying while the baby was in utero. So those things would contribute. But even prior to that, you know, what's the what's her body burden off the mercury and, and all these other aspects? And then, of course, the, you know that mercury on board of physiology will cause hormonal dysregulation. That is one of the That's most right. common things. Mercury impedes the endocrine system. It Hypothyroidism is just one of the problems. Uh, it's a very big problem. It also makes them less insulin sensitive, and it creates other types of havoc with the adrenal system. But thyroid is one of the first places that you'll see heavy metal toxicity and persistent organic gluten toxicity um, manifesting itself. So it would not be surprising to see that more, many of these women, many of these children um, had mothers that had low thyroid, but then why did they have the low thyroid? Again, that's not a question that's being asked. You know, it's an observation. But thyroid, low thyroid doesn't just spontaneously occur. And we have many patients, in fact, on the nine steps to keep the doctor away on the DVD version on the Know Your Options that you narrated, Robert, uh-huh. um, there's a lady that was on Synthroid from the age of 28 till she came to us at, at the age of 62. We started treating her for heavy metal toxicity. She had all sorts of different metals, lead, arsenic, antimony, tin, nickel. Mercury did not show up. We treated her for four, three and a half, four years, and then finally the mercury started showing up, and we got her off the, we got her mercury out, got her amalgams out, mm-hmm. and we were able to take off, take her off the synthroid. Um, she was actually, um, then we put her in armor, we took her off the armor, we had a thyroid supplement, we took her off the thyroid supplement, and eventually, by the time she, before she turned 70, this lady who had been on synthroid since the age of 28 was now euthyroid. She didn't wow. need any more thyroid supplementation, she didn't need any more thyroid support. It was all because we got her mm-hmm. metals out of the way and the thyroid started to self-regulate, which... Was even that even defied me? That was over forty, you know, forty yeah. years, forty-two years. Right, so and re- and remember, as we've said, and you've, you've acknowledged this as well, these metals, these heavy metals, mercury displaces the key minerals like selenium and other things. And uh, you know, you were right. Mercury also impacts the endocrine system very, very directly, and that's also in the homeopathic materia medica acknowledged. So. Uh, We're talking about broadcast healing today, advanced medicine coming up. We've got more questions about autism and specific deficiencies after the break. Great heavens, what kind of radio show is this? The Robert Scott Bell Show. Bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. Back at it with Dr. Batar doing some advanced medicine as we do each and every week here on the Robert Scott Bell Show. And I uh, hope you enjoyed as much as I do. The archives are available through GCN, of course, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podcast, Red State Radio, UK Health Radio, as well as the SoundCloud, but also MedicalRewind.com, MedicalRewind.com. A great place to get these things. And uh, love answering your questions here that you could submit at robertscottbell.com or you can call us at 866-939-BELL, 866-939-2355. And uh, you can call in live if we have the ability or we have the ability to do so if we have the time to take your calls live 
or we can actually play them back later if you leave a message for us. So those are the options, the ways you can go. And Dr. Batar, you'll find him at drbuttar.com, drbuttar.com. Now, I was just going to the, the next question of the day here. I just found it. Uh, and this relates to, it's kind of a follow-up. We were mentioning the thyroid issue. And uh, this goes to B12 deficiencies, interestingly enough. Uh, let's see, it's from Clive. He says, my 40-year-old stepdaughter has ME slash CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, since she was at high school. So a long time suffering. He says, I understand that this can be caused by vitamin B12 deficiency. Her five-year-old son has just been diagnosed with autism, and I'm wondering whether if his mom was B12 deficient during pregnancy and nursing, whether he might too be, too be uh, again, there might be a, a connection between the autism and B12. I'd be grateful for any insights or information. Clive, interesting how these two, sto- two uh, questions came in. They're sort of similar, kind of going to the same place. Yeah, exactly, Robert. Um, and it's interesting, too, the B12 component of the question uh, was asked specifically about B12 and autism. And so there are many uh, people that have felt that way. In fact, um, there's a couple of doctors that have built their entire practices around this concept um, where they use um, B12, methyl B12 shots. Um, They use uh, other types of B vitamins to try to overcome the autism aspect. I actually started doing that just to see. I didn't see any noticeable difference. I do believe that B vitamins are very important. B vitamins are important for life in general. And when you have people that are just, uh, you know, general malaise, sluggishness, uh, exhaustion, fatigue, they're not sure what's going on, workup is negative. Um, B12, B6, B5, um, all the B vitamins are just essential for life, folic acid. So um, to answer this specific question, I don't believe that it is related to autism. Now, there is a methylation issue that some people have a methylation issue. So if the child has a methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase enzyme deficiency, then yes, they could be contributing, but it's, again, not the cause. It goes back to the same answer as to the previous question, with the thyroid, yes. Can it contribute? Absolutely. Is it the cause? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many people that can have this type of dysfunction, and if you can help to alleviate this dysfunction, will it help to improve their symptomology? Yes, but will it take care and alleviate the autism? Absolutely no, because, again, mm-hmm. that's the denudation of the neurofibrils. They are disintegrating away, and it's causing a deleterious effect. And if you were to give person B12, it does not stop that denudation. If they're B12 deficient or, or folic acid deficient, it will help to improve some of the symptomology. But to think that that is alleviating the autism or the cause, the burn, the, the stuff that's causing the neurons to, to disintegrate, that's just not right. True. Yeah, that's a st- stretch beyond uh, where anything is in evidence. Now, it, it, the, the question also about the mom having uh, myalgic encephalomyelitis. ME, they call it, and chronic fatigue syndrome, as it relates to B12. I mean, is there, there's legitimacy there, yes? Absolutely. And, and the lack of the B12, you see, B12 and folic acid, Robert, I don't need to tell you this. You already know this better than most people. I mean, you don't have those two things. You know, that's, um, that's even more important than the selenium and iodine and chromium that we talk about, right? Mm-hmm. Even in your world, you know that, because I know selenium is true to your heart. It actually is to mine, too. I just don't talk about it as much as you do, because... Because I, I'm not... Um, well, yeah, according to, to Steve Feld, Steve the Thorough, I think he made me selenium man or something. And you, what were you? Somebody, the, you were yeah, key, that's right. He did. You, you were chelation man. That's right. That's the right. superhero. Selenium actually 
one of the most important minerals to take, on, as far as I'm concerned, on the planet, and this has nothing to do with my affinity for Robert, but <laughs> selenium is probably the the most important thing that I think a person can supplement on. And until, Robert, I met you, I, I used to talk about this all the time. I've stopped talking about it now because, you know, you always mention the selenium, but 200 micrograms of selenium in your diet has been shown in a retrospective analysis over 19 years that it decreased the incidence of cancer. Uh, I don't remember how big the population was, but it was in the thousands. Reduced the incidence of uh, of cancer from something like 17% down to 1.5%. Mm-hmm. And the only documented difference was selenium. They were supplemented with 200 micrograms of selenium. And so you would think that that would be enough to make every person to say, hey, I want to make sure that I'm on 200 micrograms of selenium. But instead, the conclusion was further studies are needed to <laughs> yes. evaluate the potential. You know, who the hell is going to do more studies on right. something? I mean, you know, just increase the, increase the selenium. Just go out there and grab a handful of dirt, you're going to get probably enough selenium if you do that. <laughs> the point is, that, you know, why do you have to do another study to substantiate that? But yes, selenium is a very important aspect. But again, right. I, I run off topic here. No, 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 um, that, that's still on topic. I, I agree because we can get caught up in, in one thing. And it's like, even though I talk about selenium, I never say it's the only thing. But yes, as far as one of the simplest things you can add in as a supplement to have the significant impact that it has, it is right up there at the top of the list in, in many cases. So it doesn't ignore the B12 and the folate and all these other things that we're talking about. But I want to acknowledge that, and the studies out there support it. Right, absolutely. But B12 and folic acid is probably one of the easiest things to do. Um, you know, I was actually once asked uh, why I don't do homocysteine levels. And, you know, my, my simple answer was that, you know, the, the test to do to check somebody's homocysteine levels is probably like $75 or something like that. Why would I do that when I can treat a person for a whole year with B12 and, and folic acid for $75? You know, if I'm going to question, I'm just going to put them on it. And, You're right. You know, yes. not even bother doing the test. I mean, again, I'm being facetious somewhat, but you, you understand the point. B12 and folic acid is synonymous with life, and, and anybody who is low in there, they're going to have a methylation issue, they're going to have problems, and they're going to end up being more prone to um, not feeling optimally and, and having other types of chronic diseases. So it's consistent with life. Um, but to again to say it's related to autism or anything like that, you know, it's kind of like um, limes. Limes is a great masquerader. So when in doubt, you could always say that it's limes because it could it could be associated with all these different symptoms. But if you really start looking at the nitty gritty of it, vitamin B12, folic acid, uh, thyroid, uh, the minerals, these are all important. But to say that these are causing something like autism, autism is caused very. There's a very specific cause of it, and even though there are many things that may contribute to it, the cause is the same, and that is the spark that caused the fire that eventually led to the trees being down. Yes, it's mercury. It's, mm-hmm. it's not the other metals. Even though the other metals may contribute to it, yes, lead decreases IQ, and nothing causes denudation of the neurofibrils like mercury. Even the most toxic substance known to man, which is uranium, does not cause the same detrimental effect as mercury does to the brain. Right. Now, if we look at other things that cause things, there's an interesting article here in a mainstream news news magazine called Time. You might have heard of it. And it's talking about emulsifiers, right? chemicals like detergents, right, to blend oil and water together in products that you buy, including ice cream that's often sold in these commercial tubs and containers. And they're You're talking not say ice cream is bad, are you, Robert? 
No, 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 not, not the kind you would like, the kind that I, I would eat. I'm going to hang up on the call. I'm, gonna... <laughs> I'm done, right? Man, I'm over. You're, you're tacking. I just want you to read the label. If you're going to the grocery store to buy ice cream, of course, we, we want it to be organic, but even more than that, look to make sure they're not emulsifiers like polysorbate 80, which, by the way, you'll find in some vaccines, and something I can I can barely pronounce here. Let's see if I can read this this word. Carb carboxymethylcellulose and these things they've they fed animals who consume these emulsifiers in their water showed changes in their gut microbes that were consistent with promoting tumor growth so these emulsifiers ingested altering the gut microbiome toward tumor growth wow so just to just to talk about the more important issue here which is ice ice cream so we get our priority straight <laughs> my ice cream is homemade Yes. A2A2 milk and um, every component we put in ourselves. So that's our typical ice cream. But yes, I mean, there's so much of this. Um, this comes falls into the falls under the uh, uh, third toxicity. Um, it fall, fall, I'm sorry, under, under the first and second toxicity, but also the the fifth toxicity. Um, I'm, I'm getting confused. Sorry, Robert. Sixth toxicity: the foods, and we're not talking about the actual foods, but the things that we do to the food. We do the, the food that we yeah. add to them. Yeah, the manipulation of the food substances. But the, the reason I said the first and second toxicities, um, because of the metals and the persistent organic pollutants, many of these preservatives that are used are persistent organic pollutants or fall in, underneath those categories or could potentially fall under those categories. Right. Um, for example, EDTA, ethylene dimetetrostatic acid, and most chelators were actually developed from an from a industrialized basis. Um, so EDTA is actually found in tomato ketchup and mayonnaise and many of these other food items. That may be one of the preservatives that's not detrimental, but there are many things that are used to help preserve food. And uh, some of the things that you just mentioned, the polysorbates and some of these other components, they're, they're used to help make the food maybe last longer. But you know, Well, they're blending like- and lasting, yeah. And, and it says right. here, Dr. Batar, that the, these emulsifiers are limited by government. Oh, thank, the, thank heavens, right? But guess what? They're limited to 1% to 2%, but oops, they don't restrict the number of emulsifiers allowed. So we could have 100 of them in there at 1% to 2%. You basically are eating emulsification ice cream. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when you start looking at some of the things that you've talked about, we've talked about on the show before, for example, when you take a Twinkie, those old Twinkies, and you could set, leave them on the shelf without a cover on them, and then four years later, it looks exactly the same and no bugs have eaten them. Why is that? Well, it's because of some of these components within those foods that preserve them to the point that even bugs won't consume them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. The thing is, if you're using preservatives, you think, well, it's to preserve the food. But how does it do that? It does it by killing things. You follow me? So if you eat preservative-laden food, you're eating food that has stuff in it to kill things. Think about that before you eat the preservative-laden foods. Now, we are, we've are we got one more segment here on advanced medicine coming up, and Dr. Batar tells me there's a uh, an event coming up, an Ask Dr. Batar special event. So I want everybody to pay attention. We're going to get make sure we got the right links up, and we're going to tell you where to go, when to go, and how to get there. After the break, so you can participate in a special kind of webinar online, kind of Ask Dr. Batar event. So stick around. Lots of uh, great healing yet to go. And you can get the links in the show notes at robertscottbell.com. More advanced medicine after this brief break. Um, can you repeat the part of the stuff where you said all about the things? It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. 
Robert will be right back. The information is so good, it requires no expiration date. The Robert Scott Bell Show. In other news, former Attorney General Janet Reno, six foot two foot tall, man. Uh, she died at 78 of Parkinson's, or the treatment for Parkinson's, we're not sure. Uh, also, other causes of cancer and problems, scented rooms, the artificial fragrances, the phthalates, phthalates that they call them. Many health-conscious consumers are saying, no, not anymore. That's a good sign. And even a better sign, we've added into the show notes today at robertscottbell.com a link to askdrbatar.com. Do you want to ask Dr. Batar a question beyond what we do here on Advanced Medicine? You can do that now. Go to www.askdrbatar.com. It'll send you right to the page and bonus that. There's a sign-up on the top right-hand area of that web page where you can take part in the upcoming webinar, which will be Thursday, November the 17th. And we've got the sign-up link also embedded in the show notes today as well. Just link, and it'll go there at robertscottbell.com. So, Dr. Batar, what's going to be going on in this webinar that you're so excited to reveal to the world? Well, they, when you go to that page on the left hand, on the right hand side, upper right hand, like you said, they can register for it. But more importantly, on the left hand side, that's where they can submit their question. And the last time we did this, which was a few years ago, we had over a thousand people attended the webinar. We we only had a capacity of thousand, and and it was totally filled up, and it went for about three and a half hours. And we had over four hundred questions submitted. We launched this time to do the same thing. And it's only been a week, and we've already had more than 500 questions submitted. So we're going to take the most commonly asked questions, because there's no way, obviously, we can answer all the questions, but we're going to take the most frequently asked questions and and then answer those, Robert, and hopefully you're going to be able to join me on this. But, for example, one of the things that I already know is that we're going to cover is the vanvcd.org, that website that um, you talked about about a year ago. We've got over 10,000 parents now that have taken that survey. These are legitimate, verified ISP addresses recorded. We know that they're real. We verify the emails and everything, and they've submitted the data, and the, the data is just absolutely unbelievable what it shows. I mean, one of the researchers, a Ph.D., uh, who did his uh, Ph.D. thesis on, uh, on cancer, he's a researcher, he saw this data, and he was blown away. He said, my God, I've never heard of any university study that has an, a, um, an N number that's exceeded to 500, 600, maybe 1,000. He goes, you've got over 10,000 people over here, and it's following a subjective SF36 patient outcome-based research model, which has completely been legitimized by all the major pharmaceutical companies and, and all the universities. So they can't argue with this because it's based upon the criteria that they've published themselves, and it shows unequivocally what the vaccines are doing. Um, do vaccinations help or hurt my child? So this is just one of the many things we're going to cover there. We're going to be covering some very um, hot topics, and everybody that registers will get a link to the webinar. But we also um, are going to have this, once the webinar is shown, then we will put this all into the IADFW, the, the um, International Association for a Disease-Free World, so that all the members can have access to that information. So we're actually going to be visually stunned to see, if you will, the reporting on the VanVCD results. So they'll visually be able to see what you're describing. Absolutely, Robert. Thank you for 
clarifying that. That's exactly right. They'll be able to not only visually see it, but they'll be also shown exactly how they can go in, anybody can, any member of the public can go in now, and they can dictate the various criteria. They can say only boys or only girls or only children between this age and this age or only children that had parents that had this medical condition, and they can see what the data shows. They can do it by country. They can do it by demographic. They can do it by any criteria they want because it's a live, ongoing, um, you know, constantly evolving uh, study. I mean, anybody could be, do their, their, their data is right there. They can do their own research now on this live data that's constantly being updated. Now, Dr. Guitar, for, the, for, for those who have not heard about Van VCD, because we've got a lot of new listeners, especially since the truth about cancer, uh, this is vaccinated and non-vaccinated children's data, vanvcd.org. Is it still av- available to submit new data, or has it been shut down and now you're reporting what, what we've got so far? No, 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 Robert. It's constantly going to be evolving, and our goal is to have a million uh, parents that have that have filled the survey out. We've only had 10,000, but, you know, to go from 1 to 2 or from 5 to 10, that's one thing, but to go from 10,000 to 20,000 and from 100,000 to 200,000, yeah. you know, that's the key. That's what's exciting. All right, folks, go check it out, vanvcd.org. If you haven't submitted data, you can also look at the data. And I thank you, Dr. Vitar, for doing some more advanced medicine with us. It's time to tell them what they need to know. That the power to heal is unequivocally yours. The Robert Scott Bell Show.